Hi guys, this is part two of a special episode we're doing on Horst Schulze. If you like this episode, make sure you listen to part one to hear how Horst started off his career and what his faith was like then. And my principal said, well, it so happens the Ritz-Carlton in Boston is for sale at the same time. And I said, oh no, that's a terrible place. Don't buy that. So let's take a step back because everyone knows Ritz-Carlton as Ritz-Carlton today, which is a well-known brand. At that time in 1983, what was Ritz-Carlton to you? Ritz-Carlton was an old name and a terrible hotel in Boston. From Lex Mundy, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong. And on the show today, Horst Schulze continues with his career story. We get into how he co-founded the Ritz-Carlton Company before going on to create the ultra-luxury hotel group Capella. And what horrific thing happened when he reached the peak of his career that changed his perspective on life for good. Previously in part one, Horst Schulze told his parents at 11 years old that he wanted to work at a hotel. At 14, he got the full support of his parents to leave home to be a hotel apprentice under a maitre d'. And two years into trade school, Horst was asked to write an essay on what he now thought about the hospitality industry. The maitre d' went to a table and I, I suddenly realized everybody in the room felt he's the most important person in the room. So my essay, I wrote about him, and I named that essay, We Are Ladies and Gentlemen, Serving Ladies and Gentlemen. So it didn't matter that horse started from the bottom, cleaning ashtrays, shining shoes, the maitre d' taught him to pursue excellence at work. And when he was 27, he thought he was in a good position to become supervisor, and when he didn't get promoted, he was angry and frustrated until he realized something. And I remembered my own essay that I'm defining myself at work. And I, I defined myself as tired, as unreliable. But that day I recognized and I said, I'm sorry, this will never happen again. I will go to work to create excellence. And I had this, this awakening. And from there on, my career took off. He started getting promotions and headhunted for roles at major hotel chains, became the GM at Hyatt Hotels in Pittsburgh, where he had to manage the union's expectations and turn around the operations of an old hotel. It was a difficult two years, but he and his team turned it into a profitable business, and he left Pittsburgh with a promotion, along with his soon-to-be wife, Sherry. By 1982, Horst was an executive at Hyatt Hotels in charge of food and beverage operations in Chicago. Things were going well. He married Sherry, and they were expecting their first baby when he heard about this new opportunity. Somebody called and said, we want to start a new hotel company, a new brand in Atlanta. We are developers and finance people. We need somebody to run this company. I had no interest. I had a wonderful job, wonderful income, wonderful friends, wonderful company. 
Okay, so 1982, someone calls you out of nowhere. This is a developer. They want to be a new company. Did they kind of tell you what kind of hotel they wanted to be? I said, what kind of hotel? They said, well, that's up to you. We're looking for somebody around the company, but we have two hotels in construction. You're probably getting a lot of offers at that time. Oh, sure. I got offers and I said, I have no, no interest. But a couple of days later, they called me back and said, look, you are highly recommended to us. Somebody said you would be the guy to do this. So why don't you consider talking to us? You can kind of run an operation the way you want to. I said, I have no interest. But I started talking to my wife and said, what would I do if I would take a job like that? Here's what I would do. And I started to have a vision and a dream. What did you say your vision was? I would build the finest hotel company in the world and uh, do something above what is now the leaders uh, in the continental hired and so on. Uh, I would go above that in market segment. And my wife noticed I was getting confused because they kept on calling. And so she started praying. Mm -hmm. She invited me to pray with her to, that one mm -hmm. door would open and one door would close. And that day something negative happened at my job in Hyatt. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened? There was an ethical situation with a gentleman I reported to that I could not ethically overcome. So it so happened that day, I had said the day before to the group not to call me anymore from Atlanta, but I came home that night and they called and I consequently said, yes, I will come to Atlanta and talk to you about this opportunity, which consequently mm -hmm. I did and accepted the job to move to Atlanta and start a new hotel company. The owner of this real estate development company, William Johnson, had several different businesses, with one of them building new hotels. Horst says the two hotels were supposed to be a Holiday Inn and the other a Marriott. But since they couldn't come to terms with the franchisers, he was part of thinking about what new brand they would build for these hotels. And so he was given the reins to provide strategic direction and operational insight to William Johnson's hotel business. It wasn't an easy start. Even choosing the name was a challenge. In the beginning of January 1983, I moved to Atlanta. Sherry didn't move with me because she was pregnant and wanted to continue a pregnancy with a doctor that she was familiar with in, in Chicago. And when you joined, did they talk to you about the name or were you involved in that decision? Well, sure. In the meantime, we acquired the name Monarch Hotels. And, and then I found out that the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco is for sale. So I went to our principal and said, look, the Mark Hopkins in Atlanta is for sale. If we would buy that, we would have a great key hotel in San Francisco and we would have a great name that is well known everywhere. And my mm -hmm. principal said, well, it so happens the Ritz-Carlton in Boston is for sale at the same time. And I said, oh, no, that's a terrible place. Don't buy that. So let's take a step back because everyone knows Ritz-Carlton as Ritz-Carlton today, which is a well-known brand. At that time in 1983, what was Ritz-Carlton to you? Ritz-Carlton was an old name and a terrible hotel in Boston. So I recommend that we should buy a hotel that would have a good name that we could use. By all means, Mark Hopkins is a much better hotel, a much better location maybe. And the Ritz-Carlton in Boston is a dilapidated hotel. I would have no interest in that. So mm -hmm. we made an offer on the Mark Hopkins Hotel. The offer was accepted, but on the last day, Intercontinental Hotel had the right of first refusal. So they had to agree with it. and they decided to, to exercise their option 
and they bought a hotel, which left us with real depression, me at least. So our ownership, our developers said, okay, then we buy the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. It's a very good deal. So we purchased in September 83, the Ritz-Carlton in Boston, which gave us the name Ritz-Carlton, which was registered globally and gave us a hotel in Boston, which, however, we closed immediately for renovation. By now, Horst had a hotel management degree from Cornell and was getting executive experience in the hotel industry. So he knew where the market was headed. He wanted to start a hotel chain in the luxury category and knew it would take a lot to turn around the reputation that the Ritz-Carlton brand had at that time. To give some context on the name Ritz-Carlton, it originated from Caesar Ritz, who in 1898 opened Hotel Ritz and later had an interest in the Carlton Hotels in London. After Caesar passed away, Albert Keller turned it into the Ritz-Carlton Investment Company and franchised the name to a bunch of U.S. hotels. The name eventually became synonymous with luxury with the song Putting on the Ritz. But that was far from reality. The company had debt obligations and finally sold it to Blakely and Associates in the 1960s. Blakely made money for the first few years, but barely broke even in the remaining years. By the 1980s, the Boston Hotel and Trademark were up for sale. At that time, William Johnson, known for his waffle franchise, wanted to get into real estate development, especially in hotels. So Horst was headhunted to join the four-person development team, where he was in charge of developing the Ritz-Carlton brand we know today. Let's get back into the story. In 1984, the two hotels under construction were completed, and Horst was in charge of operations. In 1984, we opened our first operating hotel in Atlanta, which now had the name Ritz-Carlton. A few months later, we opened our second hotel, which was the Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta downtown. So we had two hotels in, in Atlanta. Eight months later, we opened our third hotel, which was in California, mm -hmm. the Laguna Niguel, California Ritz-Carlton. And then a few months later, we reopened Boston. So now, after I was there for two years, we had four hotels in, in development. But things were not going well. Relations were disastrous, and we were in serious financial difficulties, the ownership was, and it looked like we would not survive. Every day I went to work, I thought this is the last day. So I had a personal disaster too. I was in serious financial trouble, believing that I could sell the house in Chicago. I bought a house in Atlanta. Then we couldn't sell our house. We had a baby. I didn't tell my wife that things were in serious shape, that we probably would not survive the company. Finally, it was so bad, I had to prepare her. So I went to her and said, Sherry, things are serious. We made a mistake moving here, accepting this job. And Sherry looked at me and said, why would you argue with God? We prayed on it very heavy. He showed us we should be here. Maybe the job won't work out, but we didn't make a mistake accepting it. Accept God's mm -hmm. direction. I said, wow, I will never argue with God again in front of you. <laughs> and uh, Sherry was, in the meantime, praying every day, a prayer. Well, so what was your faith like then? Well, my wife convinced me. She convinced me we should find a church, we should get involved in a church and, and find the right. And, and, and I, was, I was in agreement. I didn't do it to please her. I was in agreement that we should. We were forming a family and we should certainly have 
as a relationship with each other and find together a relationship with God. So I know that the first two years, just getting the name, just getting the funding, getting the designs right, it was hard. You really felt like you made that wrong decision and your wife encouraged you. So what happened after at Ritz-Carlton to turn things around? We became very successful in Atlanta. We, we became, in a relatively short time, the leading hotel in Atlanta. The same thing was in California and, and et cetera. We reopened Boston. Rather than having it in, in construction, spending money, we started to make money in Boston. And now we, we added new hotels to it where we didn't invest, which were management contracts where we got a fee to run, to give the name and run the company, the hotel. So the development company was strapped for cash because they were paying to build and own the assets and also run the hotel business. But now with Horst on board, the company had the capacity to get really good at the hotel management side of the business, which meant they could start bidding for management service contracts with other asset companies as an additional source of revenue. This was less risky and gave them guaranteed fees. But this also meant Horst had a leading role to build a brand reputation for the Ritz-Carlton that required him to mobilize and train employees at a mass scale to deliver consistent quality across locations. As president and COO of this company, what was something you wanted to make sure you communicated to your employees about the company since now you were in charge of this new brand? I had developed a vision for the company. The vision was we will be the leading service company in the world. Globally, number one service company in the world. Anybody I hired, I said, join me for that vision. I made it very clear though, and I agonized. Is that vision good for all concerned? Is it good for the investor? Is that vision good for the customer? Is that vision good for the employee? For every employee? Is that vision good for society as a whole? And would God approve? That was very, I agonized about that. And once I, the answer was clearly yes, then I made it very clear. When we hire people, we hire people not to come to our company to fulfill a function, but to join us in that dream. I established together with my, my early Vice presidents that joined me that I hired. In fact, they came from hired hotel company. That's how it goes. We <laughs> sat down and said, okay, what are the 20 things that we have to do to be superior to the competition in the eyes of our customer? <laughs> and we started to establish those 20 things. So when we hired people, the first day, those are the 20 things we taught them. Beyond selecting people to join the vision of Ritz-Carlton, he created a system within the organization that focused on performance excellence. By 1991, the Ritz-Carlton received the prestigious Malkin Baldridge Award, a reputable national quality award coming from the U.S. government. This framework of excellence would support Ritz-Carlton to continue to operate at a level consistently superior to competition as they started to grow outside of the U.S. When we started going global, we started to have the first hotel in Mexico, done in Hong Kong, and done in, in Singapore, and done in Bali, and done in Shanghai. And of course, it was, it was pretty clear that we were a major success. 
because you started winning awards in 1991 you're considered the corporate hotelier of the world what was that like when you're a front and center of a hotels magazine it was the first hotel magazine corporate hotelier of the world award and it was kind of exception of course and being in my industry it had a lot of meaning and a lot of emotion you know at the same time the awards kept them flying in every day there was something my goodness your lifetime left and right it came you know you're at the top in 1991 but in your book you say in 1992 your life came to a screeching halt can you tell me a little bit about what happened I was on top of the world, and I was worried myself that it wouldn't go to your head. And the reality set in every day, too. And in the meantime, I had, through my wife and through myself, a joint Bible group. We had joined the church. I started not just reading words in the Bible. I started to have a relationship with Christ. I accepted Christ as my master for my life. Let's take a break. And when we're back, we'll hear what actually happened that turned his life upside down. In memory of Kobe Bryant. Dear Kobe, you are the reason I started watching basketball. You taught me perseverance and helped me make the basketball team. You've inspired millions of us around the world to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. Many, like my friend Arnold Chang, have a story of how we want to remember Kobe Bryant. For 20 seasons, we watched Kobe play for the Lakers. He was an NBA legend and one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Today, I want to remember him to be a man who loved his family. Those who knew Kobe knew he wasn't perfect. Married Vanessa at 22, and in 2003, accused of sexual assault at 24 years old. While the case was settled outside of court, Kobe's reputation and marriage were tarnished. Yet Kobe and Vanessa didn't give up on each other. They continued to work on their marriage for 18 years. By 41 years old, Kobe was thriving with Vanessa and their four precious daughters. How that happened? I'd like to believe it's because Kobe was a man who had faith. He wasn't someone who publicly shared about it, but he did choose to when Stephen A. Smith on the Quite Frankly Show asked him what he learned from the 2003 incident, an allegation that could have costed his basketball career. But what did you learn from that whole experience? God is great. Is it that simple? God is great. Don't get no simpler than that, bro. Did you know that? But the way you know it now, did you know it before that incident took place? You can know it all you want, but until you got to pick up that cross that you can't carry, and he picks it up for you and carries you and the cross, then you know. By the time of his death, Kobe became a loving and dedicated husband and father. That's how I want to remember him. Our prayers go out to the families and friends of Kobe and Gianna Bryant and the seven others on board when the helicopter went down. Would their death change industry standards on helicopter protocol? And would it remind us to live out our lives more faithfully? Welcome back. It's just like every other day for Horst Schultze in 1992. He's running the operations of the Ritz-Carlton and flying all around the world to open and set up new locations. One day he goes in for a doctor visit. I, I, I happen to have a checkup. And the doctor was checking my arm, and I, f I felt something on my stomach there that protruding. And I said, what is that? And he said, oh, that seems like a muscle. You probably ripped a muscle there. But it didn't go away. So I called him again. He said, you better check it out. And he took an ultrasound. And the ladies took it, and they looked at each other, and I knew. <laughs> that is, it's a tumor. I knew it right then. You have to be operated right, right away. It's a very large tumor. 
I was operated. And the next thing I know, I was told, uh, you have a serious cancer. The cancer was a rare kind, called primary leiomyosarcoma. There were only about 200 reported cases at that time. And after the tumor gets removed, the cancer was known to always come back. And when it did, it would come back like a snowstorm. That's what all the doctors were telling him. I went to Mayo Clinic, and they said, you have about 10 months. And I didn't accept that, so I went to Tena Farbe, and they said, you have 10 months to a year. But I didn't accept that. I went to, to MD Anderson, and they said, you have 10 months. And then I went to John Hopkins, and they said, you have a year. And then they said, maybe it's growing somewhere already. And so they said, you have to go through a, a scan and see if it, if it is growing already. After the scan, we were waiting and scared to death that it was back already. Sharon and I were lying on the floor praying. I looked mm -hmm. at my children, one and a half, uh, five and nine, and said, I cannot leave here in 10 months. I have to be here for my children and for my dear wife. And we were praying and calling the God in a very close way when a friend of mine mm -hmm. walked in. Without getting into the details, his friend John from church gave him a word of encouragement that spoke hope and future plans into his life, even when he felt it was just a matter of time before his life would end. Just as we could not take the pain and the worry anymore, that gave us traumatic hope that night. Traumatic. It gave us hope. There was something there. Everybody told me there is no hope. And then the next day I got a checkup and nothing had started yet. His cancer had not spread, but he was still warned that it would take his life at any moment within a year, even if he proceeded with chemo. After much prayer, he realized he had nothing to lose if all the Western doctors were telling him this prognosis, to turn to an Eastern approach that gave him a chance of surviving. He says he took on a very strict modern macrobiotic diet that was specifically prescribed for him by Japanese guru, Mishio Kushi. I live by that diet, not 99%, 100%. And mm. sure enough, a year later, the, the cancer had not come back. My doctors were very mm. surprised, very surprised. In fact, they started to get interested in the diet when they first ridiculed me. Mm. And then Mr. Kushi said, if we stay on the diet one more year, it will never come back. So I stayed on it one more year. I had a great incentive there. So for two years, I was on a major, very, very, very strict diet. In the meantime, of course, I was on my knees, praying. I constantly negotiated. We all do that, I guess. We shouldn't, mm. but I negotiated for 15 more years. And, and of course, in that moment, Chris, you have a relationship with God so close. There's a totally different relationship because the layers that are on you, and we all have them. I had a very much ego, career, mm -hmm. pride, yeah. everything is gone. There's mm -hmm. only one thing, and that's God. And you realize this when you're 55, at the peak of your career at Ritz-Carlton, you just realize nothing mattered when you, when you were diagnosed. It really didn't matter. All those accolades, all those awards, what, what, what they really matter? You can't take them with you. Yeah. Nothing, nothing. Oh yeah, I went out there and prayed. I read the Bible, I started to, oh, but, but I concentrated on the stuff that creates more accolades and more money and more successes and, and more recognition that I was so excited about sometimes. Oh yeah, here's another triumph. Yeah, 
I mean, all this worthless stuff. And instead of mm. concentrating on what, what is beautiful and everlasting, the very thing that has created me to start with. Something happened after you got that diagnosis and something changed in you inside and just the way you viewed life. But you continued to work full time. Oh, sure. And you continue to pursue excellence at work. It's not like it, it changed, like, oh, I stopped caring about work. And the contrary, I, I realized that work is my ministry. What do you mean by that? I have to show it by what I do and by, by how I live. And I realize I can serve them best by letting them know who, that I am a Christian. For example, when I worked in a situation like me opening a hotel in Dubai, and I was told not to openly talk about Christianity, I could say to all employees, look, you are welcome to call me if you have a problem. I respond to you, but don't call me Friday mornings because Friday mornings I go to Bible class. <laughs> I made sure the, the company knew that I am a practicing Christian. And in that moment, I have to make sure that I present it in a positive way. And people sometimes think when you're nice to employees that you compromise. Well, you don't. In the contrary, if I compromise with one or the other, I'm going against everybody else. Because my mm -hmm. vision of the company, as I told you, I knew it would serve the investors. It would serve the guest, mm -hmm. it would serve the employee, and it would serve society. So if mm -hmm. I am compromising anyway, I'm going against all of them. I cannot do that. So, And as a Christian, I can, even less so. Throughout this time at Ritz-Carlton, you also saw some changes in leadership. In 1995, Marriott got involved. When you were about 56, Marriott purchased 49% stake in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Group. Did that impact you in any way? Part of the deal was that I had to stay five more years. And frankly, I wouldn't have stayed, but that was part of the purchasing deal that I agreed on. But at the same time, my lawyers made sure that I had pretty much power of running the company still. But, but of course, if I would buy a company, married both us, I would insist more and more that my thoughts would be implemented. And of course, mm -hmm. that was a painful, sometimes an agonizing relationship. At the same time, it was very helpful. Uh, Merit helped mm -hmm. in many ways. But at the same time, I had a deal that I could run the company as I want. Mm -hmm. Naturally, we clashed many times because they bought it and they want to run it their way. Mm -hmm. For example, they want to immediately move their headquarters from Atlanta to Washington. And I said, no, I'm in charge here. And of course, mm -hmm. when I left, finally, a few weeks later, they moved to Washington. But, but they didn't do anything that I would do as a new owner of a company. But I mm -hmm. want to maintain and resist that the philosophy of Ritz-Carlton would be touched in any way. They didn't want to destroy it, but they want to put their thought in it, obviously. So it was not an easy relationship for the next five years. Horst fulfilled his contract and in 2002 retired as COO and president of Ritz-Carlton. By that time, he had attended 55 of the grand openings of each of the Ritz-Carlton properties that opened all over the world. He saw this brand grow from four hotels in the U.S. to over 40 properties in about 15 countries with over 17,000 employees. And despite building the reputable luxury hotel brand that is the Ritz-Carlton brand we know today, Horst still wasn't done with making his mark on the hotel industry. On a Friday, I retired. My wife picked me up and we walked out and, and there were 
hundreds of employees waiting and crying, and I cried. We drove home, and the first time in many years, I was not having a plan to travel anywhere. And on Monday, I told my wife, I will start another hotel company. And she, and she declared me insane. <laughs> and she told me. Did she tell you not to tell the kids that? <laughs> yeah. Or did you also tell the kids? Yeah, I told everybody I'm going to start. And my wife said, this is so outrageous and unreasonable. You start again. I know what you're going to do and, and so on. And I realized that she was right. And I said, I'm sorry, you're, you're right. Let me give it more thought. And then a couple of days later, she said, let's talk about this. And she said, that's who you are. Go and do what mm. you want to do. Only create a small company. That's what I want to do. I want to do a couple of ultra luxury hotels. You're, you retired from Ritz-Carlton. Who, after they retired, starts a company? Luxury was changing from where it was to a new expectation of luxury. It was very clear that luxury would, would split into affordable luxury and ultra-luxury. And, and I knew that ultra-luxury would be smaller, very uh, exclusive hotels. So tell me about this new idea you had in your mind. So I wanted to start a new management company for ultra-luxury hotels. I had a lot of contacts. I contacted them, and sure enough, somebody in Düsseldorf and somebody in Singapore were interested to build luxury hotels and let me manage them with a new brand. That's how it started. And of course, uh, I had to hire people, I had to invest money, and I had no interest to, to build a company that would grow fast. You cannot do that with Capella. We're looking for very high rate and very unusual situation. And you have to be in a major city or a major resort destination. Horst says, when he started Capella, he started two companies, one in the U.S. and one in Asia. His partner from Asia was a wealthy Singaporean Kui family who also owned Singapore's Ritz-Carlton. And in 2017, Horst kept his word to his wife and exited. He sold Capella while it was managing seven hotels to the Pontiac Land Group because he believed they would preserve the standards of excellence for ultra-luxury. Did you ever imagine you would have created two reputable brands? Um, oh, the first one, I was very deliberate. I will, I will create the finest hotel company in the world, period. It was a very deliberate decision. I focused on that decision. I wanted to be a global company. The second one, Chris, I did that for fun. I wanted to have the fun to create a new concept, ultra-luxury concept, really think it through just to this one market segment and offer something to the industry and, and, and help the industry to go to the next level. Knowing full value, hotels like that can only be in very few locations because the customer for that hotel is not everywhere. And I wanted to be the first one who started a chain of ultra luxury, which of course I did with Capella. It's the hotel on Sentosa Island in Singapore that brought Kim Jong-un and President Trump to meet for the very first time. And how did you feel about that when they were in your hotel, this most historic median? I, of course, as any thinking person was hoping that it would be a successful meeting, some kind of an agreement would advance peace. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. But I have to ask, were you there? 
No, no, I was not. Listen, the employees were nervous enough without me. <laughs> but frankly, I was only happy because it gave us tremendous PR. <laughs> Since we had covered your childhood so well, what do you think the maitre d' would say to you, Horst, today about achieving this level of success in the hotel industry? Knowing, feeling still how who he was, I think he would be proud. He was very intensely trying to help us to succeed. And success, of course, what does it all mean, success? I have a title. So to me, that is not success. To me, success is if you're doing something that you thoroughly enjoy and do it well, and do everything, do it well, and do you, give your utmost to something and feel good about it. And that's what he did with his job. That's what I see. That's what I saw him doing. Horst was a career man who found it important to pursue excellence at work. He was fortunate to reach the top of his industry, but also blessed to realize that there was just so much more to life when he got diagnosed with cancer. In 2018, Horst was reminded of the second chance he had at life after giving a speech. Two years ago, I made a speech at John Hopkins University, and I was sitting besides the, the chief oncologist, and I told him that I had that cancer. And he said, that's impossible. You wouldn't be sitting here if you had that cancer 22 years ago. I said, well, sure I had it. He said, I, I, they misdiagnosed you. We, we, we argued about it. I finally sent him the slides because my, my hospital still had the slides. So what, what did he say when he saw the scans? He called me. He said, I didn't think anybody survived the cancer. He was totally totally blown away. So when that happened to you, what did that make you feel to realize how God has preserved your life? First of all, you, you, you're grateful. And secondly, you have no choice but ask, why God? Why? Why me? And, and, uh, and of course, you ask the same thing when you have first cancer, you also say, why me? <laughs> but, you know, yeah. but but now you had to say why me why did I survive this and, and I'm so grateful I mean I look at my children we, this Christmas all my children were at home my grandchildren what, a, what an honor what a pleasure what a gift God gives us it's, it's amazing how grateful you can be what would you say to listeners who are so focused on achieving success in the world? Because you were someone who really wanted to succeed and strive for it. But at the same time, you managed to balance that with your faith. What, what is success? Talk about business here. You're only successful if everybody around you benefits, not only you. They climb uh, on top of the shoulders and on their feet and the faces of people to be successful. That's not success. Success if you create value for all concerned around you. That's really success. Otherwise, you, you're not successful. You may have a title, you may make some money, but you're not successful. And, you know, is it really success even if you do that? If you put it all relative to eternity, it's all really nothing. So on the end, one day, it was only successful if you accomplished through it a relationship with God and consequently eternity. Wow. I, I think the word eternity is such a huge word. I think people should let it go more often through their mind. What does it mean? What does it mean eternity, either in glory with God or eternity in hell? Let the word, think about the word eternity forever. We cannot even fathom that word. So 
is it really successful to gain a big title, to run a big company, to, is that really success? It's a puff relative to the eternity that we really should be working on. Someone the world would call a success. Horst Schulze leads us to consider what success really is. How much have you considered getting to the top in view of how it would bring value to others? And how much have you taken into account the weight of eternity in this pursuit? Don't let life pass you without considering his words of wisdom. Life goes fast. Horst is now 81 years old, grateful for each day he has to share his story of not just excellence, but of hope. This is Grace Huang, bringing you stories that can revive your work week. If you like what you heard about Hort Schultze, make sure you check out his book, Excellence Wins. You can find the link in the show notes. Hope you have a blessed week. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by me, Shina Lee, and Joshua Huang. Audio mixing by Abel Wilson and Joshua Huang. If you like our stories, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.